Welcome to the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. I'm joined in the Brookings Podcast Network studio once again by senior fellow Jonathan Stromseth, the Lee Kuan Yu Chair in Southeast Asian Studies here at Brookings. On today's program, Jonathan shares another in a continuing series of his conversations with leading experts on issues related to Southeast Asia. Also on today's show, senior fellow David Wessel talks about the most significant economic developments of the last decade, including interest rates, life expectancy, inequality, and healthcare. You can follow the Brookings Podcast Network on Twitter at Policy Podcasts to get information about and links to all of our shows. Jonathan, welcome back to the Brookings Cafeteria. Thank you, Fred. I'm very happy to be here again. So you were on the Brookings Cafeteria recently to talk about your paper in the Global China series on China's rising influence in Southeast Asia, and now we turn to another topic. Can you talk about who you've got for us today? Yes, we're very pleased to have had the opportunity to interview Thant Min Wu, who's an award-winning writer, historian, conservationist, and a former advisor to the president of Myanmar, also known as Burma. He has served also on three United Nations peacekeeping operations, including in Cambodia in the 1990s and then in the Balkans. And he has been at the UN Secretariat in New York, where he was head of policy planning in the Department of Political Affairs. Thant returned to Burma in 2008 and has been involved in reform-related efforts ever since. He is currently chairman of the Uthant House, a leading education and discussion center, and the founder and chairman of the Yongan Heritage Trust. He's also author of several books on Burma, the most recent of which is the focus of our podcast discussion. Terrific. And how do you know Dr. Thant? Well, I had the pleasure of meeting Thant when we both served in a UN peacekeeping operation called UNTAC in Cambodia in the 1990s. And I've also uh, kept up. And when I was with the State Department, I went back, I think, shortly after the 2015 elections in Myanmar and saw him there at that time as well. Okay. Well, thanks again, Jonathan, for bringing another really interesting and important conversation to our podcast listeners. It's a wide-ranging conversation. I think listeners will find it very interesting. Great. And now here's Jonathan Stromseth with Thant Mint U. Well, I'm here with Thant Mint U, and welcome, Thant, to Brookings. Thank you. Well, we're happy to see you've got a new book out called The History of Burma, Race, Capitalism, and the Crisis of Democracy in the 21st Century. It seems you really uh, poured your heart and soul into this book. What is the main message you hope readers will take away? I'd been working in Burma over the past 10 years in different capacities trying to work on the reform efforts. And when I first thought about this book a couple of years ago, I thought it was going to be a fairly straightforward political history based in part on my own experience talking about why the transition away from dictatorship, the initial democratic reforms happened seven or eight years ago, and trying to tell the real story, the inside story, based on interviews with many of the generals and ex-generals about why they began to move, if they really did, towards a more democratic system of government. But with the Rohingya crisis and the peace process being stalled, I felt I had to look much more deeply at issues around race and identity and take a dive into the colonial past and the way in which colonial legacies around race still animate a lot of discussions in the country. But then finally, in writing the book and especially in talking to a lot of people for the book, I realized that an even deeper current in Burma is this kind of almost hidden political economy in which billions of dollars have been made through illicit industries, a type of capitalist economy that's evolved over the past 25 years that's caused an enormous amount of inequality. And I wanted, in a way, to weave together these three stories of politics, identity, and political economy, and to try to make this accessible to as wide an audience as possible. 
Tell us a little bit about how Burma got here as a country. How did it emerge from colonialism, let's put it that way, and how did that shape the identity politics that we see today? I think what's important to understand from the start is that Burma has a very unique geography. It's both the valley of the Irrawaddy River, which stretches over a thousand miles from north to south, and then it's the surrounding mountains. Over the 19th and early 20th centuries, the British ruled Burma as a province of India. The borders of Burma are modern borders. They were created under British colonial rule, even though there had been Burmese kingdoms in these areas before. The borders are new, many different peoples speaking different languages, now professing very different religious faiths as well, live within the borders of Burma. Um, But it was, as I mentioned before, governed as a province of India. And by the early 20th century, this idea grew up in colonial circles, a very strong idea of Burma as being racially distinct and separate from the rest of India. And a Burmese nationalist movement formed, which also believed the same thing. And so this kind of identity politics was at the very core and at the very start of modern Burmese politics after the First World War in the 19-teens and 1920s. This campaign to separate Burma from the rest of India came to fruition in 1937. And so in the same way that India was partitioned and Pakistan created on this idea of religious difference, Burma was actually the result of the first partition of India that we often forget in 1937, where this new entity was created on the basis of racial difference. And after independence in 1948, the Burmese nationalist elite found that they were in a country which included many other peoples as well. And for this also, this colonial idea of races that belonged to the country, that were indigenous to the country, versus people who were fundamentally alien to the country because they were of Indian or Chinese or European descent, also became very much part of post-independent nationalist thinking. Mm. In your book, if I'm characterizing it right, you seem to paint a pretty dark picture of the future. You talk about warning signs and a combustible mix of race and inequality kind of percolating through immature democratic institutions, blind faith in free market, rampant illicit industry, and uplands awash in weapons. And you sort of look at that and say, or at least ask the question, is Burma at risk of being a failed state in the heart of Asia? How should we view it? Is there a way out of this uh, combustible mix and dangerous situation? I mean, Burma's had a very difficult past 70 years from independence onwards, where it suffered under three different colonial legacies. One is what we had talked about earlier, the legacy of identity-based politics and race-based thinking. Burma was born, in a way, as a racial hierarchy under the British. The second are very, very weak state institutions, So even when the British left in 1948, state institutions were very weak. They barely governed the entire country. They didn't govern the entire country, the periphery. And after decades of internal armed conflict, they're that much more limited. And because of years or decades or generations now of military dictatorship, these bureaucratic institutions are also extremely frail. So almost no one in Burma pays taxes. The ability of the government to reach out and actually govern the population is very limited. And for about 40 years, Burma was under different types of socialist governments. And that failure of the left to actually produce a better society meant that by the 1990s, Burma lurched towards a type of free market capitalism, but under military rule in a way that was intimately tied to China's industrial revolution next door, intimately tied to illicit industries within the country as well. 
And this has created a particular political economy that in a way has generated not just huge differences and inequalities within Burmese society, but is animating many parts of Burmese politics today. And I try to argue in the book that we have all of these challenges. I'm not sure we should think about it as a failed state because in a way you have a relatively peaceful country. I mean, we have the Rohingya violence and exodus. We have fighting in the north. But you go to Rangoon and Mandalay and nothing looks like a failed state. It's actually relatively peaceful despite the fact that we have multi-billion dollar illicit industries, despite the fact that we have dozens of armed groups. So it is interesting because then that sort of begs the question, what's really holding the country together? If it's not state institutions, what is it? And therefore, I think in a way there's an urgent need to think afresh about how do we think about these kinds of countries because I think we're missing something in a way and we don't have the conceptual framework to really understand the dynamics of a place like Burma right now. I see. You've given us a sense of how to understand Burma. Is there a reason for optimism, a way out? What is your prescription for next steps? You've advised the government before. What's your advice today? I think if we looked at all of the different issues, whether it's the issue of accountability and refugee return in Rakhine or the situation of IDPs or a peace process that's been stalled, the armed conflicts, or even political progress towards a more democratic constitution, I think a lot of those doors are shut and it's very hard to be optimistic. I think the door that's actually open is the door to kind of a robust and dynamic but also fair and much more equal economic development in the country. And Burma is, in a way, gifted because it's naturally so rich in resources. It's sitting between two of the largest and fastest growing world economies, India and China. And on the other side, there's ASEAN, which also includes many much more prosperous and fast-growing economies as well. If Burma had a good economic agenda... I think there's no reason why we wouldn't be able to see the kinds of economic growth rates that we've seen elsewhere in the region. The key, though, is to make sure that that economic agenda is also harnessed or tied to an agenda of equality and greater equity as well. Mm -hmm. And I think if we had that much more inclusive economic growth that reduced income inequality, I think that will gradually open the door to positive change in the political sphere as well. Or the reverse, I think, is also the case where if we don't tackle these political economy and inequality issues, I think many of these political problems and identity and interracial, interethnic problems can only get worse. Right. I wanted to ask a related question to the identity politics because there's been a lot of reporting about the role of Facebook in Burma today. How has this impacted that particular situation? We've had a telecoms revolution in the country since 2013 where the country's gone from maybe 2-3% mobile phone penetration to now 98% plus smartphone penetration with some of the fastest internet speeds in the region. And Facebook is pretty much the only platform in the country. So everyone uses that. And so social media in Burma basically means Facebook. We've seen on Facebook since almost since its inception in Burma a big rise or a very noticeable rise in hate speech, in inter-ethnic or inter-religious hate speech, not just against Rohingya Muslims or for Muslims against non-Muslim groups, but across other ethnic lines as well. I think it's important, though, to say that it's not necessarily the cause for the mass violence that we saw in Arakan or in Rakhine back in 2016, 2017. That violence took place in a context of hate speech and heightened feelings based on race and identity and a desire and a vilification of the Rohingya as a minority population. 
But I think if the same situation had existed without Facebook and without social media, where you had this population on the Bangladesh border and you suddenly had this rise of a particular militant group that attacked some of the army's positions, you have an army that's been involved in counterinsurgency and often brutal counterinsurgency operations for decades. So it's not very clear to me that they wouldn't have acted in a different way. Mm -hmm. It's not the case that Facebook or social media incited racial hate and suddenly enormous crowds of people then turned on their neighbors. It wasn't that kind of situation. The violence we saw in Rakhine was a very specific set of circumstances, and the violence was related to this militant group and the army operation that was used against them, and that led to the deaths of civilians and the exodus of refugees. So there's an indirect link, but I would be hesitant to say there was a direct link. Right. So do you see any remedy, any solution to the Rohingya issue? How many Rohingya are now refugees in Bangladesh, for instance? Is there, it 700,000? At least, because there are earlier waves of people mm-hmm. who've also settled or are in different camps in Bangladesh as well. Can you just give us a little bit of the state of play and where this might go in the next two or three years? Is there any chance for repatriation? What is Aung San Suu Kyi's perspective and the perspective of the government? I guess there are a few different things that are happening. I mean, one is that because of the violence in 2016, 2017, you have the 700,000 plus in the refugee camps in Bangladesh. Both governments, Bangladesh and the Myanmar government have said that they want these refugees to return. Both are blaming the other for the returns not taking place. It's very difficult for me to see how a significant number of the refugees in Bangladesh would voluntarily return at this stage, mm-hmm. given, I think, from their side, a lack of or a complete lack of confidence in the government's ability to provide for their security and a reasonable life going ahead. I think from the government side, there are people who genuinely want to see at least a partial repatriation of refugees happening, Mm -hmm. uh, and again are blaming Bangladesh for not facilitating this partial return from taking place. Separate are the issues of accountability. So you have in the International Criminal Court now this new investigation into possible crimes, war crimes. You have the country of Gambia and Africa now taking up the case of or allegation of genocide against Burma or Myanmar at the International Court of Justice. But separate, again, is the situation of the hundreds of thousands of Muslims who are left in Arakan or in Rakhine, some of whom are in IDP camps. And then to add another layer of complexity is something that very few people on the outside are aware of, which is that the dominant minority group there, I mean, it's not just the Rohingya and the Burmese, there's another minority group, the Arakanese Buddhists or the Rakhine Buddhists, who number over a couple of million, Mm -hmm. who have been wanting a greater say in their own government, people who've increasingly turned to a new militant outfit, a new insurgency called the Arakan Army, which has been fighting the Burmese government or the Burmese army in the north of Rakhine, very close to the areas from which the refugees have come. And this has led to more than 100,000 more people displaced over the past 12 months. So Burma is, you know, it's an incredibly complicated place where I think the difference with some other countries is that from region to region and place to place, even township to township, you have very different local dynamics, local politics, local identities, local economies. And that's why it's very hard to generalize or to even begin to conceive of overall solutions as well. Let me just have one follow-up on the Rohingya issue. You've referred to the ICC and the ICJ cases that are coming up. This is sort of symptomatic of the broader international concern and reaction and some pushbacks or efforts to address it. How does this play in Burma? Will this kind of pressure, if it emerges in that way, have some impact on government policy? 
It's possible, but I think it's extremely unlikely. I mean, this is a country that withstood the toughest possible sanctions regime, both in the 1990s and the 2000s. Both the US and the UK led sanctions that basically cut off almost all international aid to the country, as well as cut off Burma from the international banking system and global markets. And yet the army regime at the time didn't bend. And so I think in Burma, in government circles, in Naypyidaw, there's a lot of experience in ignoring that kind of international pressure. It's hard to say because it is a different environment, a more open environment. It's a government that wants to prove its democratic credentials, that says it wants to do the right thing. And so this kind of international pressure may have slightly different impact. But I think if we're thinking about anything that will urgently improve the situation of refugees or IDPs or minorities and vulnerable people left in Rakhine, I'm not sure that these measures towards accountability, however important they may be in themselves, will actually make a difference. Mm-hmm. Well, one name that has come up here in our discussion and that always comes up when talking about Burma is Aung San Suu Kyi. And she's been such a compelling figure for decades, really. She's won the Nobel Peace Prize. I was wondering if you can situate her for us in the context of Burmese politics. There's a sense maybe there was excessive optimism, especially in 2015 when the NLD won that historic election. And perhaps Maybe there's excessive pessimism now. Her reputation has certainly taken a hit over the last few years. And I'm just wondering, how do you evaluate her? How do you see her in the broader context of what's going on in Burma today? I think the problem is that she was always judged for obvious reasons in the West against a kind of standard of her being an icon of human rights and liberal democracy. So in the 1990s and 2000s, when she was the leader of the opposition against the military dictatorship, it was very easy to see her exclusively in that light. I think for the Burmese majority, she was always seen in a very different way as a popular leader, as a nationalist leader against a military regime that was increasingly and extremely unpopular. So she was always a nationalist leader, and that nationalist sentiment wasn't necessarily a liberal nationalist sentiment. It was the idea of the people of the country, or at least the majority ethnic group, the majority people of the country, going against and finally being able to overturn not just an unjust military regime, but a whole slew of different forces and people that people felt were exploiting them or were threats to them. And so whether it was a fear of Islam, whether it was a fear of Muslims within the country, whether it was the fear of the Chinese coming across the border, whether it was a fear or a dislike of cronies and corrupt businessmen and army generals, all of this was kind of in the same populist rhetoric of around a kind of need to restore popular sovereignty and reassert the rights and the position of the majority. And so I think that's the framing within which people see her. And she has, over the past few years, very much adopted that kind of framework as this nationalist leader that is working for this particular ethnic community of people. I see. So as someone who was previously in government around the time of that 2015 election, I'm really curious to get your take on kind of the broad arc of U.S. policy toward Burma in this period of the opening up, the move toward elections, and efforts to try to consolidate the democratic turn subsequently. The U.S. obviously was using sanctions as a tool early on, eventually uh, lifted. There was also efforts to support more foreign assistance to help consolidate the democracy and support for the election in the run-up to the election. 
Give us your sense, your evaluation of U.S. policy. It was really a central tenet of the Obama rebalance strategy. Burma always came up. So I think there's kind of looking back now, how did we do, and a little bit of concern about how things have turned out. Yeah, I think on the one hand, it was successful. And on the other hand, I think it could have done much more. On the one hand, I think if the Obama administration hadn't embraced the reform process at an early stage in 2011, the energy and the political capital domestically for that reform process might have evaporated much more quickly. So I think if Washington had remained distant or skeptical of that process, the generals or the ex-generals who were leading those reforms may have not had the wherewithal and the local political clout to keep it going. So I think that risky move to say that something important is happening and significant in the right direction, the visits of Secretary of State Clinton and later President Obama, I think were extremely important in locking in place those initial reforms. I think a problem, though, was that there wasn't enough of an understanding of what the drivers of change were. And there was a feeling that if only free and fair elections were held and if the NLD and Aung San Suu Kyi came to power, all the better, that that would be the right trajectory. And I think forgetting, in a way, the parts of the ex-army or the military establishment that had begun those reforms, there wasn't an enough effort to see how important it was to keep that going, at least up to a point. So meaning that what happened was that by 2015-2016, when the NLD won the elections, those ex-generals who had initiated the reforms lost out completely. And so what we were left with is just the NLD in office and then the army shorn of its reformist wing in a way. I think there's also China, which is that China very much felt it was in a weak position on a back foot by 2011-2012. They were not sure exactly how to approach them. They saw the Burmese government embracing every Western government with abandon, moving towards rapprochement with Washington much faster and much more enthusiastically than I think they would have thought possible. I think that was exactly the time when China should have been engaged in terms of cooperation in Myanmar going forward. Mm. Whereas now China is in a much stronger position five, six, seven years forward, where I think it'll be very difficult to engage China on any of the issues where perhaps a regional or global or even bilateral between the U.S. and China approach to some of Myanmar's problems might be useful. Mm. I'd love to come back to the China question in a minute, but before we get off U.S. policy, we've talked a little bit already about the policy of the Obama administration during this period of moving toward reform, holding elections, and so on. What is your outlook now or your suggestions for U.S. policy today? I think it's very hard to know how the U.S. on its own can really solve any of these incredibly urgent and pressing challenges that Burma is facing. I think the number one thing is just to appreciate the depth and the complexity of the challenges that Burma is facing. It's not the case that this is a stalled democracy transition, a stalled peace process where you've had extreme violence against the Rohingya, and then that's it. And it's about pressuring the government into adjusting its course. Instead, I think we have to see this as a country which is almost miraculously being held together despite the fact that it has these dozens of different armed groups, hundreds of militia, multi-billion dollar illicit industries, weak or failing state institutions. And we have to be extremely careful that what we do isn't going to tip the situation over into something much worse. In a country where because of telecom, social media, everything else, you have people mobilizing around tribal, racial, ethnic, religious identity on an unprecedented scale. And you have decades of increasing 
wealth inequality and I think economic anxiety, it's not going to take very much necessarily for things to tip over into a much worse situation. So I think one is just to understand the scale and the nature of the problem. The second, I think, is that the focus cannot be as it has been for 25 years, just Burma as a democracy project, or now a democracy project sort of gone awry. I think the issues of political economy, the way in which money is made, is being made, economic issues, inequality issues, really have to be front and center of any kind of engagement going forward if it's going to have traction on the one hand, and it's actually going to open the door to possible solutions on the whole range of issues on the other. How much of the problem is just the continuing prominent role, which is constitutionally enshrined, of the military in politics? We saw this in Indonesia, for instance, and it took a long time to sort of reform the Indonesian military out of formal participation in political institutions. But what does the Constitution now give, for instance, the military in terms of seats in parliament and also, I think, oversight or ministers in three or four ministries? It's actually, in terms of day-to-day government, in some ways it's relatively limited. So, for instance, the army has 25% of seats in parliament, but because the National League for Democracy, the ruling party, has well over 50% of the total, it can actually push through any legislation and it controls the budget completely. The only thing that the military with 25% can block is any change to the constitution. What the military also has through the constitution is control of three ministries, defense, border affairs, and home affairs, which controls the police. Until earlier this year, home affairs also controlled the general administration department, which is sort of the local administration department. But that has now been handed over to the civilian side of the government. So I think the problem is not so much the military through the constitution itself, though I think most people would agree that amendments to the constitution are needed. I think the problem is that there isn't a shared vision or agenda around where the economy should go otherwise. And I think a deep problem in Burma is that, like in many other countries, and this is a way in which I think Burma is not unique, a complete separation of politics from economics. So on the one hand, politics is seen around identity issues and democracy as conceived through constitutions and constitutional reform. On the other hand, economics is seen as the realm of technical experts and advisors flying in from outside and bureaucrats. Yet these big issues about what kind of country should Burma be in the future, what kind of economy, how should people live, what kind of growth does it want, how does it want to handle big issues like tourism, what is the balance in terms of wealth inequality that people in Burma want, are they okay with a very unequal but free society or do they want something with a much stronger government role and one that reduces inequality. These issues are not debated at all. And so I think that is the missing discourse that is preventing things. So I think if you had the right discourse on it, the right discussion I'm not sure that the army would actually stand in the way. I think if you frame it narrowly around why don't you change this constitution that took you 25 years to write and that's made you comfortable with taking a big step away from government, they'll resist it. But I think if you engage the army in some of these broader issues, I'm not sure that same resistance would be there. Well, we were talking earlier today, and if I heard you right, I think you, like me, I believe, see probably the two big issues in the world today as the rise of China and climate change. And I know that both of these issues loom large in your book as well. So let's look at China today. You talked a little bit about China's role six or seven years ago. Today, we hear a lot about the Belt and Road Initiative 
and other sort of ways in which China is exercising, especially economic influence, which in many parts of Southeast Asia, especially mainland Southeast Asia, is translating into strategic and political influence as well. So just give us a sense of the changing role of China in Burma. It's a long-standing process. So the border between Burma and China was opened at exactly the same time that Burma transitioned from its old socialist system to a capitalist system in 1989. So it's a 30-year process of increasing economic integration with China. You now have hundreds of thousands of Chinese who've migrated to Burma, who have businesses, thousands of small firms that operate across border. China is by far Burma's biggest trading partner. In one direction from Burma to China go hundreds of trucks every day, mainly with primary commodities, agricultural commodities, but also natural resources. From the other direction from China comes the vast bulk of Burma's consumer goods market. So everything from bicycles to car parts to televisions to smartphones to furniture, to clothing. And if you look at the relationship, the economic relationship today, at the top level, you have the proposed China-Myanmar economic corridor under China's BRI as part of China's BRI. And that would include huge infrastructure projects that would basically link southwestern China through Burma to the Indian Ocean. That would include major development projects all along the way. That would include big energy, hydropower, and other projects and would include port as well in the Bay of Bengal, and a proposed new city opposite the river in Rangoon in the south of the country as well. So this is the big plan on the table, but even though the plan has been approved in principle, none of these projects have actually You mean approved forward. by the Burmese government? The Burmese government have said that they approve of the China-Myanmar economic corridor. They haven't in detail approved the projects in terms of financing arrangements or anything else. Mm-hmm. But what is happening instead is that around, it's not directly BRI, but it's in many other ways, connectivity between China and Burma has increased. So for example, we've gone from just a few flights to China today to over 20 flights from many different Chinese cities. We have big rise in Chinese tourism. The rise in just small scale, small to medium scale Chinese investment has increased, I think, markedly over the past few years. Mm -hmm. And I think the way in which Burma is perhaps different from other countries in the region, other countries in Southeast Asia, is that you have a completely open land border that is not under the control of the government on this side, meaning on the Burmese side. So almost up and down the 1,300-mile-long border, the border is controlled to a large extent by non-state armed groups, some of which are hostile to the Burmese army. And so it's a kind of a frontier. These groups are to some extent led by elites that are increasingly cinified as well. So you have this weird area, probably about the size of England altogether, where no one is clearly in charge. You have non-state armed groups, you have Chinese influence, political as well as economic coming across the border where there's occasional fighting. And so you see this kind of rolling out of Chinese influence and perhaps projection of Chinese power that I think is different than, say, any other border that China has at the moment. There is, I think, a growing school of thought among analysts of international relations that we kind of have rival systems developing in the world today, where the U.S. represents the old liberal order, democracy, and so on, and China is promoting something else, perhaps even at the domestic governance level, a kind of model of authoritarian state-led development. There's also questions, especially in Southeast Asia, about whether the Chinese model is influencing domestic politics of different countries in Cambodia or elsewhere, either directly, perhaps, or indirectly in other ways. 
Do you see that playing out politically in Burma today? Not so far. It could in the future, in the distant future, because now just seven or eight years away from the iron fist of pure military dictatorship, I think people are eager to embrace a much freer and more competitive system of government. I think what's key is, or what's really important, is to make sure that these new democratic processes are connected to discussions and efforts aimed at actually improving the lives and livelihoods of ordinary people. Otherwise, if it's a content-free democracy, where the economic system, which has been incredibly predatory and exploitative, continues as it is, and democratic processes are just about constitutional change, then I think a lot of people will, at the very least, become disappointed and just turn away. Mm -hmm. And then I think you open the door perhaps 10, 15, 20 years in the future where people have forgotten about the bad aspects of authoritarianism opens the door to a new kind of authoritarian future. I see. Well, let's close by talking about climate because this is an issue, as I mentioned, you raise in your book. When I travel to Southeast Asia, I hear so much about this, whether it's the city-state of Singapore or the Mekong Delta in Vietnam. Everybody is very concerned. It's a maritime region that's increasingly affected by storms and hurricanes and other things. What is the problem and the challenge of this issue in Burma in particular? If what scientists are saying is going to happen in 20, 30 years, if the world warms two, three degrees, the impact on Burma will be absolutely catastrophic because we will see not only rising sea levels and the possible inundation of parts of the coastline, which is very low-lying, including places in and around Rangoon as well, a city of 5 million people, we will almost certainly see more extreme weather events. So this is a country where Cyclone Nargis in 2008 killed 140,000 people in a single night. We may see similar events, not just every 20, 30, 40 years, but every year in the future. We're already seeing unpredictable rainfall patterns in a country that's been for thousands of years since the dawn of agriculture in Burma, maybe three, 4,000 years ago, dependent on the monsoons being very regular. We're already seeing hundreds of thousands of migrants leaving the dry zone because of extreme heat and drought. So if this was a very rich country, it might be one thing, but as an extremely poor country that simply will not have the wherewithal to adapt to these things very easily, I think the results could be absolutely catastrophic. Mm. Well, thank you, Fant. This has really been interesting. We've uh, taken a wide tour of Burma from history to the political situation, the economic challenges, some opportunities, and also the challenge of climate change. Wish you the best and come back soon. Thank you very much. I'm David Wessel, and this is my economic update. As the decade comes to a close, one of our colleagues asked several of us in economic studies at Brookings a simple question. With the modicum of hindsight we have today, what was the most significant economic development of the 2010s? Here are a few of the answers. One, interest rates. How low they are. At the beginning of the decade, the Congressional Budget Office forecast that the yield on 10-year Treasury bonds would average around 5% during the 2010s. Today, those rates are well below 2%, and CBO projects they'll hover around 3% for the next decade. This reflects a far-reaching change in the U.S. and indeed the global economy. There's been a steady, sustained decline in what's sometimes called the natural rate of interest, the one expected to prevail when the economy is healthy and everything is normal. This low rate of interest makes it possible, for instance, for the U.S. government to shoulder a larger federal debt 
reduces the cost of borrowing for everything from home mortgages to public investments. But it also makes the Federal Reserve jobs tougher. With interest rates so much closer to zero than has been the case in the past, the Fed has less room to cut rates to fight the next recession. Two, life expectancy. After increasing steadily for decades, life expectancy at birth, last estimated at 78 years and seven months, began falling in the U.S. in 2014, fueled by increases in drug overdoses, alcoholism, and suicides among working-age Americans. The surge in drug overdoses is at least partly attributable to the introduction of widespread adoption of prescription opioids in the late 1990s, but many experts believe these deaths of despair, as they're called, reflect increasing stress and lack of opportunity for many Americans. And the gap in life expectancy between rich folks and poor folks is widening, with those at the top gaining many more years of life than those at the bottom. Three, inequality. As the U.S. economy slowly recovered from the devastating Great Recession of 2007-2009, the gap between winners and losers in our economy widened. Even after taking account of taxes and government benefits, incomes of the top 20% of the population grew much faster than incomes for everyone else. And the very best-off Americans are claiming a large and growing share of wealth, of assets. The top 1%, those with net worth of more than $11 million, had nearly 40% of all the wealth in the U.S., according to the Federal Reserve. That's at levels we haven't seen since the 1920s. Four, health care. Since the Affordable Care Act became law in 2010, the fraction of Americans without health insurance has fallen by more than 40%. That decline is almost entirely due to subsidies the government is giving for people who buy coverage on their own and to the expansion of the state-federal Medicaid program that covers a lot of low-income families. Interestingly, at the same time we were expanding coverage, there was a slowdown in the pace at which overall health care spending rose. Between 2010 and 2018, Healthcare spending went from 17.3% of GDP to 17.7% of GDP. The typical eight-year period over the preceding half century saw an increase five times larger than that in healthcare spending. For a longer list of significant economic developments of the 2010s, check out our website at www.brookings.edu. The Brookings Cafeteria podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, starting with audio engineer Gaston Reveredo and producer Chris McKenna. Bill Feynman, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews, and Lizette Baylor and Eric Abalahan provide design and web support. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, The Current, and our events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file and I'll play it in the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places. Visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews. <laughs>